difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Koski. And... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps is busy campaigning for Alderman of the 40th Ward, but we'll bribe him back on board next time. In fact, we get a GoFundMe going for a bribe, <laughs> a nice bribe. In our last episode, we discussed Michael Mann's debut feature, Thief, about a professional safecracker looking for one last big score in Chicago. In this episode, we return to the Windy City with Steve McQueen's new film, Widows, about a group of women picking up where their thieving husbands left off. At first glance, Widows seems to be a huge departure for British director Steve McQueen, whose previous films could hardly be described as crowd-pleasing genre entertainments. 2008's Hunger is about a hunger strike in an Irish prison in 1981. 2011's Shame is about a man suffering from sex addiction, and his Best Picture winner, 2013's 12 Years a Slave, is about a free African-American abducted and sold into slavery in the 1840s. All immensely accomplished, but austere to the extreme. On the surface, at least, Widows is a welcome change of pace, opening with a whiz-bang chase sequence shot from the back of a getaway van where a team of professional thieves are fleeing from the authorities. But after a shootout and a huge explosion, all four of the men are gone, along with two million belonging to Jamal Manning, a crime boss from Chicago's South Side. Manning, who also happens to be running for an open alderman seat against Jack Mulligan, a legacy politician played by Colin Farrell, wants his money back. So Manning threatens Veronica Rawlings, the widow of the robber's ringleader, and orders her to pay him back for his losses, or else. When Veronica, played by Viola Davis, finds her husband's plans for a $5 million heist, she recruits other widows, played by Michelle Rodriguez and Elizabeth DeBecky, to pull it off. Yet Widows isn't all action-packed fun. McQueen and his co-screenwriter, Gillian Flynn, working from a mid-80s British crime drama, have made a film about power, who has it, how it's reinforced, and how difficult these barriers are to surmount. In that respect, it makes a lot of sense to set the film in Chicago, a city known for political legacies, mob violence, and an entrenched culture of disenfranchisement. The heist is just a spoonful of cinematic sugar that makes the thematic medicine go down. We'll be right back with our reactions to Widows and its connections to Thief after a quick break. Husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. What I've learned from men like your late husband and my father is that you reap what you sow. Let's hope so. This is for guns. Guns? From where? Figure it out. If this whole thing goes wrong, I want my kids to know that I didn't just sit there and take it. I did something. Now, the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. So, uh, Widows, I, I've seen this film a couple of times now and it's played for me very differently both times I'm, hmm. but, uh, but of course I'm curious to hear what you all thought of it. Uh, Tasha, let's start with you this time. I think when you start thinking about it this movie is a bit of a leaky sieve. I have so many questions about plot things that don't add up hmm. and I don't care. I, <laughs> I love this ensemble so much. Mm-hmm. I love the the acting here. I'm such a huge fan of Viola Davis, and I have been for a really long time. Cynthia Erivo is new to me this year between this and Bad Times at the El Royale, I which she is spectacular <laughs> in. Oh, my God. But just in general, this is just a really, really great assembly of talents. And the story is pulled off with such style, and it's so, so Chicago set. I saw this for the first time at TIFF and I walked out with my jaw on the floor. I just mm-hmm. loved it. And then I watched it again in the theater yesterday with a packed crowd of people having that experience where you're both enjoying the film and enjoying listening to other people experience mm-hmm. the, the film for the first time. Mm-hmm. I just really like this movie a lot. 
Yeah, I've only seen it once, so my my feelings on it, are, I guess, are still pretty unambiguous. You know, I'm I'm just I wholeheartedly love it. I think it was great. I haven't had a the opportunity to, to go back and you know maybe analyze the ways in which the plot may not uh, hold together. Or, or I'm very curious to hear how your reaction mm-hmm. uh, changed, Scott. But I'm, I you know I'm still in the glow of love with, with this movie, having having just seen it. Um, everything Tasha said, the performances. I really think what it does with the Chicago political machine is super interesting. And I think the criminal motivations at work are the way that they are all intertwined and, you know, to a certain extent systemic and how that is meshed with some very personal, uh, you know, motivations and and emotions. Uh, I just think it works really well and makes it satisfying on multiple levels. You know, it has that that style and that tension, you know, that, that we have in Thief. But it, to me, anyway, it just felt that there was like so much more to chew on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like the film. I mean, I'm not saying that my opinion of it shifted to the negative from mm-hmm. one view to the next. But the first time I saw it, I was just thrilled to be in the presence of a studio thriller that was this well made. <laughs> just like to, just somebody who just is going to take you through a story, like get you right away, as, like this movie does with that intercutting between yeah. the thieves with their spouses, and then and then the shootout from the back of the van. It was just so gripping, and the film never really loses that grip, despite telling a story that has so many moving parts you know maybe the second time you kind of start to see those movie those parts a little bit more you do and you don't appreciate that to some extent but uh i kind of just appreciated the thrill of it with the first time and then the second time i was thinking well this film is actually about something and i'm somewhat let down by that in a way i mean it is a thematically rich movie which i'm sure we're going to get into and there are a lot of cross currents and, and motivations and the, the pl- there's plenty of things to unpack in this movie but my experience the second time was thinking oh wow this movie is actually almost theme first and it's really manufacturing this whole thriller around certain ideas that it wants to put forward which is usually not the way i like genre films to work but i think this pulls it off anyway it's well very well done maybe it's not time to you know just dive into specific scenes but there there is a a scene that just kind of sums up the way that style and substance work together in this film. And it's when Colin Farrell's uh, character, uh, Jack Mulligan, when he, he goes to that, uh, like, minority women uh you know event you know and he's uh accosted by a journalist and then they get into the car and they drive away and it's this very interesting camera angle where you can't see in the car but he is ranting and you're it's like half you see half the windshield and then half the mm-hmm. you know the the city moving around it and just like in the course of that rant the way the city changes to arrive at his tony hyde park mansion you are mm-hmm. You are, you know, in Chicago, like this is a city where some of the poorest neighborhoods are butted right up against some of the richest neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And you can make that transition in yeah. like five minutes or less. It's such an arresting shot. It's an arresting performance. What we hear of Colin Farrell mm-hmm. and then what we are getting from it, what we are being told about the setting and the themes of this movie. It's just all there. I am glad that you dove into that specific scene because that sequence fascinates me. Mm-hmm. The first time I, th- I saw it, I thought... Is Steve McQueen solving for something here? Like, did the shots inside the car that he was meaning to cut to not turn out? Because the whole thing has the feeling of, of like, ADR voiceover of, uh, of an existing shot. But the second time through, watching how that's put together, like, watching the neighborhood change around the car over the course of this very short drive is really pretty interesting. But we're also, it's like uh, Colin Farrell's character is being concealed during this mm-hmm. moment where he's revealing a lot about himself. Um, he's revealing a lot, having just done this very shuck and jive kind of politician thing uh, for a, a bunch of like black people in the ward who he's expressly promising support for minority owned businesses and like glad handing with them. Uh, he then gets in the car and proceeds to rant about whether his executive assistant has ever slept with a black man yeah. because of his, his racial issues with Manning in specific. And one of the interesting things about that scene 
scene is you can't see him, but you are watching the black driver the entire time. You can mm. just see through the windshield mm. to this completely impassively faced man who works for him, who's clearly sitting here, like listening to this like racially tinged rant that comes out of like all of his weird frustrations about about race and class and who he has to serve. And it's just there's a lot packed into that sequence. Yeah. I mean, that's a very self-conscious choice that's <laughs> to shoot a whole scene that way. But it works so well and it shows such insight into the way Chicago works, you know. I mean, in other cities, too, I'm sure the way um, the lines are drawn in, in other places. But Chicago specifically in, in, the, in the south side, all of that made so much sense about how the city works and how the lines are drawn and who has power. And, you know, it's just it's very interesting. And, and, and you the movie gets into such detail about that about like well you know it was pretty easy for the mulligans to continue their legacy because the ward was drawn up a little differently before but then you kind of ticked off the mayor and things were sort of shifted and now this race which would have been a laugher before is going to get pretty tight because you've lost this area presumably you've lost more you know wealthy white voters or whatever the mulligan constituency is has disappeared a little bit and to have all of that information packed into this movie is um impressive because it handles it so well it's so fleet um despite having so many balls in the air i think it does fudge the geography though because it's the 18th ward that they're they're running for right mm-hmm. yeah okay. and this doesn't matter to the movie but just you know talking about the chicago chicago at all the 18th ward is like very far west it's like more mm. more like towards midway and you know if and if he was able to drive that quickly from the M Wow event to a house that I know for a fact is in Hyde Park. Okay. You know, so it, it, the house it, itself it, might be, but I mean Manning makes the point that he lives one block into the ward. Mm-hmm. It's possible that the house itself is not meant to be in Hyde Park. Yeah, I know. I'm just I was kind of pointing out like in, in terms of like the Chicagoness of this movie, like I think there are certain liberties taken. Oh sure. With, you know, with it, it's not like trying to be an exact portrait because like I the geography of that scene uh, specifically doesn't quite play i I will flat out say that one of my one of my my least favorite things in movie criticism is people who are like "Ah, i live in chicago and like where they're seen driving south on lakeshore drive and then suddenly they're heading west on 1994 like (laughs) and yet we're supposed to believe it's the same highway what fools and it's like i no, i will i gotta i gotta i have to be uh, there was one specific moment that just drove me insane in what was that thing that um kumail nanjani the the comedy that he did uh that oh, the the like. yeah 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 the, there was a scene where he's out driving and he is driving basically with navy pier on his left the, he'd be driving from the water into, <laughs> it's, like from it's... out of the water into past the I just, I just, again movies oh. are meant to be imagistic not yeah. not I geographical know, that, 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 that not, nobody is supposed thing. to like look at a movie at the, at the big sick and like use it for street directions i know i, I just, know. I, just I, like... I have no patience with the geographical arguments i'd love to hear from people about this because people really love to to complain about how movies portray their uh you know their favorite cities the cities that they were in and they get really ranty about like you f- fudge the geography on this and i i just i don't understand like everything about movies is artificial for the point of story at least narrative movies like why why this stick i, I want to be clear i'm not complaining about this yeah. fact at all i am just i'm noting it to illustrate that this sh- like movie should not be taken as any sort of like chapter and verse on the chicago political system it's, it's, it, i mean i think it i think broadly speaking it's insightful about sure. it too though I mean, should it, it be yeah. taken as chapter and verse on how uh, women of color like batch together to <laughs> commit crimes for five million dollars <laughs> Uh, it gets that right, right? I mean, we, it's persuasive in terms of like how it plays out on the screen. It's persuasive, but is it accurate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a very stylized movie. Like, I, it, it, it don't, it don't bug me. I get bugged. I will say, I mean, I, I had a piece that ran on on musings by Vadim Rizov, uh specifically about New York neighborhoods and how he appreciated Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist because it gets the specific area of New York perfect. You know, all the all the geography. And I think if you do it right, you know, and I think and I think to a large extent, it, you know, even if there's a little bit of fudging in, in Widows, it does it right. You can bring so much out in, in the movie and give you such a such a richer experience than you would have otherwise. I, I felt so gratified to see. Fireside Bowl. The film. What's that? <laughs> the Fireside Bowl. Oh my bowl. God! Fireside Bowl. I, I was just like. Ee! 
I know. during all the scenes in the Fireside Bowl bar, which both of, both of these movies we're uh, discussing this week uh, have extended scenes in bars that I have spent a fair amount of time yeah. in, which I, I enjoyed. The, the Fireside Bowl is where, when we were at the Dissolve, that was where the Media League bowling uh, happened in Fireside Bowl. Which so is I got a, my first turkey ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ge- the site of Genevieve's triumph is was also the, the site of uh, some poor... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got his legs stabbed, beaten up. Yeah. But anyway, back to the film, right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, how does it? How does the film work for you, both as thriller and social commentary? Because I mean, those are the two areas. I guess it's kind of functioning. Uh, maybe there's more as well. As a thriller, it's sort of weirdly lumpy because it, uh, like, it was definitely kind of sold as a. Uh, an exciting heist movie, but the heist is really moved to the back end. Mm-hmm. You know, heist movies are very often about a bunch of super competent people who know a lot about very specific areas, each contributing. In this case, you've got uh, Viola Davis's character, uh, Veronica, basically saying, all right, you, go get weapons. How? I don't yeah. know. Go get weapons. Here's some money. You, go figure out what this is. And she hands the blueprints to the person who can't figure them out and not to the person who can because it's entirely arbitrary. Like, so much about the planning of the heist is arbitrary and ends up being kind of either luck based or just cunning based and then the actual heist itself is like a very small period of the show most of the story is about getting to understand like who these women are Mm -hmm. who their husbands were how this all came about the background of the people that they're going to rip off what the chicago environment is like it fascinates me i guess that this movie is so much more interested in who these people are than in the crime that they do Mm -hmm. which is so not how heist movies normally work and i i think that in and of itself is cool yeah and i I mean it does feel like to some extent a subversion of the heist movie for the reasons you state and that it is more interested in the characters motivations maybe than the mechanics of the heist itself but also like these are not pros like like they are more or less being forced to do this. Well, uh, Veronica is is definitely being forced, you know, and everyone kind of has their reasons that they can't not do this. Mm-hmm. But it's not like these are, you know, career criminals or who do it for passion or do it because they're good at it or do it because they don't know how to do anything else. Like yeah. they're doing it because they have no choice but to do it. And that feels very unusual for a heist movie for, for me. And I think like a lot of the satisfaction of a heist movie normally is kind of tied up in like watching someone super competent do this thing and like get one over on someone and that's not really what's happening here you know and it the the ultimate heist is kind of similar to what we were talking about the like a smash and grab job you, mm-hmm. you know like there's a little bit of finesse with acquiring the codes but other than that you know it's a pretty fast violent thing i was thinking about the motivations for doing it i mean obviously veronica is forced because this two million dollars that some of someone else's money is now that's a debt that she has to pay or else but i mean ultimately for everyone it's about ownership and buying their own freedom or buying what but buying you know something that's theirs i mean because they'd all been provided for in some way either by their husbands or, or by you know, some shady deal like uh, Michelle Rodriguez's store. She paid the the rent on it, but it was well. That was that was her to, husband, you know, quote unquote, providing for her, but then screwing family. her over. Yeah, yeah. Like, and then they need this money to, and they literally need to take it away mm-hmm. from the powerful people who are sort of lording all of this over them too. I mean, so there's a symbolic value to that of just this is money that powerful men have, and they have to literally go and take it. And in and, and taking it, they can get some of that power for themselves because it's not going to be given to them. I mean, I love the grace note or detail of the money that Mulligan had, stole, whatever, that, that they take, a large portion of it does end up going to minority women-owned businesses. Yeah. Like, not just the uh, uh, Cynthia Rivas character, the the beauty salon she works in, but also Michelle Rodriguez's character, you yeah. know, gets her, gets her store back. So there is sort of this sweet irony to uh, this kickback money going toward the thing that he paid lip service to. Yeah. But in fact, completely held in, in, in the purse strings of yeah. and was, was much more of an exploitative project. Can I just ask some questions about the plot of this movie? Sure. Oh, boy. Why do Colin Farrell and and Robert Duvall's character have the $5 million 
in a giant brick in cash in a like what are they is there a plan for that money like we know where it came from Mm -hmm. but given how mulligan is living i kind of assumed that he'd just been skimming that money to fund his lavish lifestyle but no his dad apparently skimmed it in order to put it in a giant brick in his house why why is that money not in businesses why is it not in the banana stand why is it not like distributed somewhere or like in kickbacks or something why is it in a giant brick in their home well i would say i mean for one isn't isn't that money uh green line kickback money yeah okay and then the other thing is like i think you know that that kind of it's you know you're working in cash it's not really a, a traceable thing right i mean I, it seems way more traceable like when you say than putting in a bank we went in a ban- Ill, ill-gotten gains no in like no no bank, when you or? say we went five million dollars over budget uh on this and like nobody knows exactly where that money goes i assume a certain level of grift and money being like leached into illicit businesses i don't imagine him going to the city and saying can i have five million in cash put it in large bills put it in a make it into a brick I'm just going to take that down to the Green Line station and give it to the yellow workers. I mean, I I kind of took it to be campaign funds, like like off the books campaign funds, and, and that is tied up in the fact that it's money that the Manning camp was was trying to steal for the, essentially their own campaign. But like all the the off the books uh, campaign expenses, you know, basically it's it's money intended to keep the Mulligans in power. And this being the Chicago political system, presumably, a lot of that happens off the books. That makes a great deal of sense, except for the part that we're literally days before the election and they still have all of that money in a brick in their house. Yeah. Yeah. You got to kind of give let the genre be the be the genre. <laughs> okay. Well, I think um, also the fact that their house is the center of the campaign as well. You know, yeah. like like it's campaign headquarters. So it's money to keep the Mulligans in power. Maybe not necessarily even just this campaign. It's political walking around money. You know, the the the, yeah. the cash you need to get things done in in the city. Yeah, I'm sure that but many people bribes people don't like Venmoing bribes. <laughs> Um. Okay. Um. None of none of this. I mean, it's is, a very convenient, you know, yeah. you know, none way of to do it. This is super compelling so far. But okay, can I ask you some more questions? <laughs> okay. Sure. Uh, uh, I'm not going to be able to answer them. But go ahead. Daniel Kaluuya's character, Jatem. Jatem. Why does he go after the what? Why do they kill Bash? Why does he keep chasing the notebook? He's expressly told, like, by his brother, we're going to give this a week. They're going to give us $2 million. Then you can go get the notebook. But he goes after the notebook anyway. I think I have an answer for okay. this one. And, and he causes all kinds of chaos, all of which is completely unnecessary given what he ends up doing. Okay. All right. So why? Uh, so this is a very small moment that I, I did actually want to get your guys' thoughts on. While he is like basically staking out the women as they stake out the, the house, he is listening to a Spanish language like instructional tape. And uh, it's specifically a part on buying plane tickets. So what I inferred from that is that he is planning to steal the money and, and run. Okay. Oh. Nicely done. Yeah. All right. I like it. He's, it, he's, he's betraying his brother. That works. Yeah. That, that, that is literally I, the only moment I caught in the film that suggests that reading. Uh, I think specifically given the way that character works in relation to how Jamal Manning, played by Brian Terry Henry, also excellent, mm-hmm. um, how he works, it suggests maybe a, a more selfish. Uh, okay. I like and, it. And he's not, he, he, he's not that honorable a guy. He's kind of just bad. Oh, he's no. Kind of I mean, he's just he's, kind of a bad guy. He's certainly he's certainly sold as a big old thug. Okay, so when he goes to Bash and says, like, where's the notebook? He was always just planning to kill him just to put more pressure on her, maybe? Because I'm I'm really unclear. That all happened so rapidly and without seeming motivation. I was pretty curious about that. I mean, I think his intent was to make it so they couldn't do the the heist that is written out. Like they they got the how to do this. You know, I think he maybe just intended to do it himself and get rid of anybody who might keep him from doing that. Okay. All right. I've got one more and then I'll stop. Okay. I mean, I've got many more, but I'll ask one more and then I'll stop. There's a moment at the end where they've got the money and a character says, like, I need that money and and basically goes to kill Viola Davis and take it away from her. He was never planning on that money being stolen in the first place. 
why I, I, I certainly understand if he felt entitled to it or he wanted it, but he says, I need that money and he means it. Why does he need money that he was never expecting to be stolen in the first place? Well, he, he has that line about you were just supposed to give them the notebook. Right. You were not supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think he is playing both sides or he was playing both sides and he was leaving the tools for the the Mannings to get their money back. You know, I, th- I think like that character obviously is a very two-faced character uh, in multiple ways. Yeah. But so I think it was he needed the money that she was never supposed to have so he can put right his plan because he's also trying to to leave with his new woman and yeah. child, you know? That was like one real sticking point for me. Um, we're being so vague. Here. It's the one thing without without warning anybody, I didn't want to go there, but we we should probably just give a spoiler warning if we're gonna talk about this. Yeah. yeah. We've probably spoiled a pretty decent amount of it now. And we are a spoilery podcast, but we're fixing to <laughs> spoil big time. So if yeah. you want to fast forward or something now to connections, now might be the time. I had a real issue with the business with their son uh as being mm-hmm. a motivating not only a motivating factor. But also just the incident in which he's killed, it just seemed like such a cheap rip from the headlines, kind of like just like throwing in one more socially. Some people thing laughed into in it. my theater, which was Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's deadly. Not, that's yeah. not good. That, that, that but I mean, rough. am I wrong? I mean, did it seem that seemed a little much to you all? Or it you... worked. It worked fine for me in part because it sets up the moment where Veronica, like in just a, I think a fit of self hatred, says that it would be better if Harry had married somebody else and had a child with somebody else because that child might still be alive. And what she's expressly saying is they wouldn't have shot him if he wasn't black. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with it being a ripped from the headlines thing because like the, the issue of cops shooting unarmed black civilians uh, is a huge issue. And I don't think it can get enough play. I think it was very clumsily done though. I'm not clear on what was in the box. I'm not clear on why he felt it was important to suddenly lunge for the glove compartment to grab that box while the cops are screaming at him to put his hands where they can see them. That whole thing seemed very clumsily choreographed. Remind me of that show. What was that show that went completely off the rails on that very same thing? It was like a behind the scenes show about like a bachelorette type of thing. Oh, Unreal. Unreal. Yeah, <laughs> the second season of Unreal had a had a similar scenario happen. It's uh, that completely screwed what was a very very bad second season. And I just think I think you really have to earn it. That has to be the focus. It just seemed like you know this film has so much that it wants to say about so many different issues that just to put that last thing on there was just it was too much for me yeah I I mean, really to me it worked because it goes by so quickly it's you know there are several films this year uh that the hate you give monsters and men like that explore this uh social issue in immense painful depth and here we have a film that's just like this is so common at this point like it can just be tossed out as an understood thing mm. we don't have to spend an hour on exploring this you know what this looks like you know you know that these travesties of justice occur and it can just drop it there again my problem with was just how it was choreographed made no sense to me i think i uh, agree with tasha like i like that this is a a aspect of viola davis's character uh, or her background the way it is depicted in the in a movie that has no shortage of like very stylishly presented kind of like look at me sequences like to apply that style to that moment I get the impulse of like not turning away and like, you know, like showing us this, this horrible thing because if it had been only like implied or if it had been done in a way where the camera looks away, that would feel like cheating too. But because it is such a big thing and such a big thing, like in real life, having it be just this like very small sliver presented in this way, just I I, I very much resent the people that laughed in the theater, but I almost yeah. understand it just because it's done in sort of a trivializing. Yeah, to me, trivializing is, you know, the way or like kind of a surprise, I guess. And it maybe strips it of a little bit of its impact because of that. Well, here's the thing. Do you guys have an equal problem? I mean, basically all of the widows have an issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got somebody with a gambling problem who's destroyed her her work. We've got somebody with an abuse problem who's uh, who beats on his uh, wife on a regular basis. And then here we've got 
this tragedy that's torn them apart. All of these things are are very much shorthanded. Did you have a problem with the brevity of what we get into with the other characters' backstories and motivations and relationships in the same way? Maybe a little bit with Michelle Rodriguez's character, Linda. It feels a little more backgrounded there. I think Alice, Elizabeth Debicki's character, I think she gets a lot uh, in this movie. Like what we're told of her her husband and how uh, he treated her combined with the interaction with her mother uh, <laughs> after, after he died. <laughs> yeah, Jackie Weaver. Wow, Jackie Weaver. The way that that informs her whole thing with Lucas Haas and, mm-hmm. and, and that whole arc and her ultimate conclusion. I I really liked that character and how that character's past, present, and future were handled. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez's character feels less so, especially that weird scene with briefly making out with the the widower that she goes to for the blueprint plans. Like that that scene was very strange. um, And I didn't quite understand Mm. what was being gone for there. Um, So maybe a little less successfully with Linda, but uh, I think uh, Alice's character was appropriately shorthanded that's, uh, that's on the way toward char- that's yeah. a great character and also just to have like we see the the very the evidence of of abuse and then and then to have her mother just basically say this is kind of a way you can make money it's just so <laughs> it sets up such a hill for her to, to, to climb to be able to kind of get transcend all of this garbage that she's that she's being handed and try to uh, be her own person i thought that was great but there's so much to talk about what else i knew we would get in this situation <laughs> where we would have to stop before we completely unpack the film but we're going to stop and we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between thief and widows our go date is in three days the night of the debate. Now all of our work is worth nothing if we don't move this money in fast. The notebook says $5 million. That's exactly the amount of money Mulligan was accused of taking in commission kickbacks. So over here we have $2 million. 20 Tupperware boxes, each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now over here we have $2 million. 40 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We got to start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Maybe we should start with the lead character in both, with Veronica in Widows and with Frank in Thief. What do you feel like they have in common, Natasha Robinson? I feel like the primary thing is just they come across as really, really selfish people who maybe break a little bit in terms of sympathy as they make connections with other people. But Veronica's lack of of sympathy for or interest in uh, the other women that she recruits, like normally films about this are about the greater emotional sensitivity of women. And it, like, we're, yeah, we're all ghostbusters, but we're all friends too. And we're going to look out for each other's emotional backgrounds. Yeah. We're like doing this big heist, but we're all like sisters too. Mm. In this case, like she walks in and she's like, I don't know anything about you. I don't want to know anything about you. You're going to cooperate with me on this. Or I'm going to blackmail you and give your names to people who are going to kill you. And then after that, she's just, again, she's like shoving jobs in their face with out any interest in their abilities. She just keeps kind of bringing across this, I don't want to know you, I don't want to be friends with you. You work for me because I'm forcing you. And James Kahn brings the exact same attitude to you're going to be my wife. You know, it's like, I don't care that you think your life is fine. I don't care like that you fought your way back from all of this stuff. I have a vision of our future and you're going to cooperate with it. I think in Veronica's case, that is meant to be her arc because like let's, let's just talk about the the last moment of, mm-hmm. of this movie when she sees alice and and smiles and asks how she is and like that's set up in direct contrast to like the last thing she says to them before they storm the house is if anything happens you're on your own mm-hmm. you know and this every woman for herself you know the mentality that she has carried through this whole thing uh, I think maybe we're supposed to see that as a reflection of her husband and how he ran it as a professional and her feeling like she has to run it, run his plan as a professional mm. without any sort of emotional connection. 
and her like realization at the end of seeing the woman that got shot that almost died who i'm not sure if she is the one who killed robert duvall's character or if the, no it was michelle rodriguez's character who who killed robert duvall right okay but seeing the woman who almost died and you know maybe realizing that you know another woman killed a man because of her like i think maybe in that last moment we're mentally like it, it sort of crystallizes that maybe this wasn't just a job we weren't professionals you know we we banded together and we got something done because we did it together not because we were pros on a job i would describe veronica as less selfish is just extremely pragmatic i mean she's in the situation where she has to come up with this money and she is going to do whatever it takes to get it done and that includes you know enforcing a little discipline and in, in taking people who are not professional thieves and making them professional thieves you know of, of, having, of having that situation where it's like we have practically speaking we have to carry all of this money in these duffel bags and it's going to weigh this much and can you put this on your back and run from here to there and it's like that's the kind of way the way she's thinking she's thinking so intensely about what needs to be done that she doesn't have time for decorum i guess uh there's decorum and then there's do this you don't have the skills to do this therefore do this mm. yeah it, it's that last minute her pep talk being if you if anything happens you're on your own mm-hmm. like that <laughs> that is not a charismatic way to handle a heist i don't think she is teaching them professionalism apart from the dirt scene which is uh like a a pretty clever thing it that's like the first step she seems to take in terms of trying to like emotionally prepare them or uh like get their minds in the right place as opposed to just like barking orders i don't know i it it fascinates me basically Uh, much like james Kahn's character fascinates me because the specifics of how what he wants and how he pursues it are so distinctive and unique I have not seen this character before who has no interest in what anybody's skills or abilities or uh, utilities are and just wants them to go shut up and make miracles. I mean, that's basically what she's saying is, I don't know how you're going to do this. Shut up and make a miracle because I need it done. To bring in Thief, and we didn't really talk about Jim Belushi's char- mm. character in there. There's oddly few like actual interactions between them, but it, it, he's clearly set up as Frank's sort of right hand mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, they've clearly worked together before, so like there is a presumed you know connection between them they go on vacation together too that's right yeah they're they're, they're buds yeah but there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern on frank's part for what might happen to his buddy in terms of the planning stage or in terms of like what ultimately happens yeah but both You, you know well i mean he's concerned with him figuring out how to beat the alarms obviously Mm -hmm. he's concerned with him doing the job the same way that veronica is concerned with them doing the job i don't think we see anything of him being concerned for his well-being the same way we see him have concern for okla even though jim belushi is like right there by his side so in terms of protagonists putting themselves first it feels like we see that play out within the the team dynamics i guess of this heist uh, in similar ways one other thing uh, that that brings these movies together is the violence there is quite a bit of it it's mm-hmm. extremely graphic and well yeah. both but yeah. thief has got a lot of like you Chunks know flying. blood packets <laughs> and stuff right um, paint packets it, yeah it's very it's, it's very very viscous bright red even, even though it's a movie from 1981 it's 1970s blood left over that they yeah. were just like yeah, and it got it got redder sharp. and more like that house paint blood yeah. <laughs> I kind of like that you know just like the, it's 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 lurid I like I like the, I like when you get kind of the big brightly oh, colored blood. I, I think it's ridiculous but yeah you're right about the chunks <laughs> flying yeah uh, when Jim Belushi's character gets shot like I can't remember the last time I saw somebody get shot and just have gobbets <laughs> of <laughs> flying through the air in ultra slow motion like that's a very Michael Mann touch yeah, yeah. like I don't know sorry I, yeah just just to go back to our, our last connection real quick like do we even see him like reacting to him his bud getting blown to chunks I mean, he's a little busy at that time. yeah he's yeah got exactly. he's got a lot going on i uh, think he, he might have actually already been blackjacked at that point so uh, what about the violence in uh widows gosh i mean the first one that comes to mind wait is... can i guess the rapping yep oh. yeah J- jatem uh, forcing those two kids to rap and then shooting them and the fact that he leads up to all of that, like he's reading a book, 
he he's like I, I i'm sorry i can't kill you right now i need to finish this page yeah essentially <laughs> there's so much style to that particular ridiculous murder scene starting with the fact that it's a uh, like in a a basketball court somewhere mm-hmm. that the the two of them start that his victims start locked in equipment locker where they're rapping every part of that sequence of violence is ridiculous and over the top uh but in a very dialed down intense way except for the camera spinning around yeah. them the whole time like that's such a flashy move it's like the camera is literally like winding us up as you know during the like heightening the tension because you yeah. know you know this isn't gonna end well but, but when is it gonna break and then when it breaks it's just ah. and the whole purpose of that sequence is basically just to show that jatem is uh a, like a hardcore badass because mm-hmm. we don't see those kids and also maybe a little bit of a sadist like he, he yeah. enjoys oh, yeah. And he enjoys violence. True. And it doesn't have, is in no way involved with uh, the cleanup process. Like he, he (laughs) literally says, take care of this and walks away from, from his goons. You know, he's there to, to do some murders and uh, not to deal with the aftermath because he doesn't ever have to deal with the aftermath, which makes it easier for him to be a sadist. But that whole sequence narratively is about a couple of people we haven't seen before and have no attachment to getting killed. It's not about the killings at all. It's about him and, mm-hmm. and that moment. And you contrast that with uh, James Conn getting the ever-living crap kicked out of him in the police station and just how like intimate and protracted and like raw and and like sloppy that moment is it feels choreographed because it has to be but it also it just feels very like it's a big spontaneous pile on of just people expressing anger whereas uh the jatem scene is such a, a cold and clinical expression of anger what about you scott you your beloved violence with, yeah uh, you how, do how, love what did you violence. think of your beloved violence I, I, I yeah i enjoyed the violence in both films quite a bit because there's a lot of them i don't really i don't know i mean I, I don't it's funny to think about like c mcqueen is somebody who uh is not shy with with, with the showy camera movements of the show yeah. like you you definitely are there are moments in this movie and in 12 years of slave and definitely in hunger and all of them basically <laughs> where, where it's like you're so conscious of of the filmmaker i i mixed feelings about that as much as i as much as i enjoy my show, showy directors but as far as the violence goes i mean i you know it, it gives the film both films a lot of impact i mean with thief it sort of pushes it into something a little bit more lurid and not as not as classy a film as we had, we had maybe assumed it w- w- would be and and with uh what else it just it, you know it's it's just part of the the punch of it it's just such a it's it's a film that, that gets you going with the shootout right away and it's got cars flipping around i mean it really is on the surface a a very effective you know and violent uh you know hollywood thriller um you know so i was kind of happy to see mcqueen move so well into into that terrain because you know he's someone i think who's known as being intensely arty intensely austere filmmaker i think it's also interesting how the violence is like meted out in these two films in thief we're like we're introduced to frank as a someone who has maybe the potential for violence but and, and i could be forgetting a scene but i think the first like really kind of brutal scene is the police beating you know I, I think maybe frank brandishes his gun but i don't think he shoots it at any point and then we have this very big bloody shootout at the end there is the whole sequence where he invades the the plating uh store and True. holds the proprietor at gunpoint yeah like that isn't nearly as brutal as the the cop shop sequence uh, it, and it is all about his potential for violence and his ability to control a room mm-hmm. with the threat of violence. Yeah, yeah. Threat of violence is is a good way to put it com- in comparison to Widows, where it comes screaming out of the gate with that heist gone wrong or whatever. Like that is violent. It is not necessarily one on one violence the way that. Uh, but we get that shortly after with the the scene we were talking about. You know, like it is. it's a blanket over the entire film whereas thief it seems to kind of push it more toward the back and make it a little more climactic it is interesting to me that apart from the shootings at the end of thief the biggest violence comes not from the career criminals uh, but from the cops Mm -hmm. not from the two opposed forces the protagonist and antagonist but from this like completely orthogonal direction Mm -hmm. you know they're just these kind of extra thugs who are trying to muscle in on on the business which would lead us nicely into talking about Mm -hmm. uh, the chicago yeah i mean that that was i was so kind of excited to revisit thief and see how well the film's 
connect in their in their notions of how Chicago works. In both films, there's this very strong association slash collaboration between authorities and politicians and the criminal kind. Like those are the, they work hand in hand to run the city and put everyone else down. Yeah, so I appreciate it. It's, Chicago is not simply a backdrop for these films. They they, mm. they are about you know a very specific form of of uh, urban corruption that unfortunately we're known for. <laughs> yeah, but but also like two slightly different elements of it. You know, Thief is m- more concerned with police corruption and the mafia, mm-hmm. whereas Widows is much more about political corruption. And, and they're obviously politics and the police, they're, they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. But in Widows, like, police are not real. We don't really see them. Well, uh, apart from them killing Marcus. E- exactly. But in terms of the the broader political corruption, there is not like a the police chief isn't, you know, bro- uh, there or, yeah. you know, like we, we aren't shown a direct connection to the uh, between what's happening with the Mannings and, and the police. But it is still the law to a certain extent that is at heart rotten. You know? Yeah, I think that's because they operate at very different levels on the political spectrum. I mean, the the criminals in Thief are dealing with like beat cops and detectives, as opposed to like slightly higher echelons of politics, like aldermen in Chicago are very powerful, but not really necessarily that highly placed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very important to their neighborhoods, and they're very important to the financial working of the city. Which, by the way, one of the things about the political corruption in Widows that fascinates me is Manning wanting to get into the business basically for the kickbacks. Like normally in a story like this, you would have like you've got the the entrenched uh, white guy whose family has held this position for uh, generations and just expects it to be handed to him. And you've got the up and coming like black guy from a poor neighborhood who has notions of authenticity. It's very important to him that like he lives and works in this ward. He knows the people like he's part of the rhythm of it but he outright says like he isn't in it to help anybody Mm -hmm. he's in it because once you have this position you can command so many kickbacks you can make so much money and he just he equates it he's like he used to be a drug runner he wants to get out of that business because he doesn't want to get shot he wants to get into something that's equally illicit and lucrative and he has equally few morals about it. I, I think that's a really fascinating choice. Yeah. And the Mulligan character, I think I may have mixed up my man and Mulligan at some point, but um, Jack Mulligan, like there is that interesting scene between him and his father, played by Robert Duvall, where obviously Jack Mulligan is corrupt and taking kickbacks and like he is not in this for any pure reasons. But he's also presented to us as like, maybe has a little a few more scruples than his father and like maybe is not wanting to do it the same way his father does mm-hmm. or or still has some echo of of you know public service uh, in the in the back of his mind i feel that that's somewhat analogous to the jamal manning character you, you know the way that that uh, assumption of you know to use a, a perhaps tasteless term of phrase, like it's not that black and white, you, you know, like neither character is that black and white in terms of their morality. You can't graft a, a hero villain, you know, paradigm onto this. And I mean, that's uh, like, that's just the ultimate like look at, at corruption is this, this idea both sides are equally corrupt. They're corrupt in completely different ways, but you know, there's, there's not a good choice. There's not a positive choice. There's not a protagonistic choice that you can root for. That's the hero that's going to come in. And at the end, when you find out who won the election, it's just kind of a toss off. It's, it's like, we don't, we don't go back to him and see how he's dealing with it, whether this was something he wanted or not at this point, having already tried to reject the idea of winning. We have no idea how he took it because it doesn't matter to us because it's the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is indicative of the way a lot of Chicagoans think of, of our local politics. You know, there's definitely a, a deep, deep cynicism yeah. <laughs> running through and, the, and, the electorate and hopelessness here. too is about how, well, how can how can it change? The criminal element and the lawmakers and, and authority figures are in the game together. I mean, who, who, what hope does do, do ordinary people have, even uh, ordinary criminals? <laughs> 
What hope does a good, does a safe cracker have an environment like that? So, um, I mean, that's why I find that the police uh, beating sequence so fascinating. Is they're they're so angry at James Con <laughs> because he won't just go along with the way with the Chicago way. Yeah. You know, the way things are supposed to be. This is very simple. We let you commit crimes. You give us money. Why can't you get with the program? And there's there's just such a righteous. Uh, indignation there that he he won't just cooperate and give them their damn bribes yeah well that is uh the chicago way the chicago way (laughs) um so thief is currently streaming on voodoo of all places but i'd highly recommend the superb transfer on the criterion edition of the film uh widows should be in theaters through the end of the year and beyond we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, well, before I get to my main recommendation, I'm just going to give like a little mini recommendation inspired by, by the, this episode and by uh, Tasha talking about how much she liked Cynthia Erivo, who I adore and am very excited to see more people you know getting to know her but uh she is a a broadway actress who most recently was tony nominated i think she might have won for the color purple in 2016 Hmm. and she sings the hell out of the song i'm here i was lucky enough to see it in person in new york uh, in the front row so i was like holy i was like eight feet away from this like amazing powerhouse voice like singing directly into my face but uh if you're familiar with the song you probably know the moment i'm talking about uh if not you should definitely hear it i would uh recommend looking up on youtube it's the 70th annual tony awards the color purple 2016 uh and it's kind of the full cast but uh, about half of the clip is given over to Arivo and everything she can do and uh, you should just watch that if you are at all compelled by her. Okay. Wow. Uh, but my main recommendation is a film that is currently on Netflix called The Kindergarten Teacher. It stars Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, this is a very interesting film. I'm still kind of processing it a couple days later. I guess you'd call it a drama like maybe bordering into like psychological thriller but it never like fully uh, kicks into that gear but the broad plot stroke is Maggie Gyllenhaal plays a kindergarten teacher uh, who has a, a family, a teenage, almost grown children. She's taking continuing education, poetry classes, and she takes a notice of this young child who uh, this is like five-year-old who composes poetry on the fly and decides to nurture his talent. And it goes from there. And I don't want to like get into the specifics of where it goes because what's so interesting about this film is, I, I guess it's not a spoiler to say like, some lines get crossed. It's very unclear. There's no like Rubicon that is being crossed. It's like a continuous edging over the line. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, the line's way back there. When did that happen? <laughs> you know, and the way it plays with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character's uh, sort of nurturing, like she's a very nurturing character. That is like her, her primary character trait. And the way that it develops that nurturing aspect of her character into something that is self-serving maybe edging into sinister in certain points is super interesting it's a little bit uncomfortable uh, to watch but it doesn't go in any real traumatic areas i feel like i need to issue that (laughs) clarification because it does involve a young child and the child is at no point actually traumatized in this but uh, it's it's really more about maggie gyllenhaal's character and it has i think one of my favorite ending scenes i've seen in 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 a long time it's a very interesting ending so yeah uh kindergarten teacher it's a kind of a strange one but uh maggie gyllenhaal is great in it she's someone i always enjoy watching and Mm -hmm. she has a lot to work with here the kid who plays uh, Jimmy, uh, Parker Sivak, he is very cute and very good in what he is asked to do. And yeah, The Kindergarten Teacher on Netflix. Check it out. I'm, I'm guessing neither of you have seen it yet. Uh, no, no, but I've, I've heard very good things. Yeah. Uh, Scott, how about you? Uh, well, well, today I went, I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole because I read this incredible piece in Deadspin by Sarah Barker uh, about an ultra runner named Courtney Dowalter who uh, ran this this endurance race called Big's Backyard Ultra. And like the ultra running is like you're running these loops, right? And you have a certain amount of time to finish these loops. And then you just keep running and running and running. And the, and the person who does not drop out 
wins. Oh <laughs> basically, my God. is the way it works. And like, <laughs> like, and like a this, dance this, 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 this race, basically, yeah, it's basically like, um, what's the, what's the, let's say like hands on a hard body, but racing. Um, and, um, and, and like this race total, uh, I think, they, I think they, they'd run something like 200 and something miles. It was just absurd. So that kind of got me to this movie called The Barkley Marathons. It's a documentary that's currently on Amazon Prime. And it is about uh, this ultramarathon trail race. It's much more cross country in the hills of Tennessee. And the, the, the racers, they run these. It's only limited to 40 runners. The, the entrance fee is $1.60. Plus, he usually somewhat likes a flannel shirt or something. Like he's very, It's a very quirky race. Um, and it's very secretive and very treacherous. They have to run through this, these briar patches that just that shred up their ankles. And it's, just, it's crazy to even to look at. But in any case, they have these loops that they run, and the the race is five loops total. Each loop is basically marathon. They say it's twenty miles, but it's it's longer. So the total total race is like over a hundred miles, and you have to finish. In order to finish the race, you have to finish within sixty hours. But the problem was like. Yeah, obviously it's extremely hard. the the the, the conditions of the trail are very difficult. They go, you, there's like a part of it that goes under the Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, which is where James Earl Ray, the uh, Martin Luther King's assassin, briefly escaped. Like <laughs> it was like inspired. He that, that partially inspired these marathons because he escaped, but only got about eight miles before he was caught. And so, uh, so they decided to make this race that was like a hundred miles. <laughs> you know, it's a is it a brilliant piece of documentary filmmaking? No, but not, neither really was hands on a hard body but it is incredible to watch uh human beings put themselves through this experience and then also to see what a quirky one-of-a-kind event this thing is so uh so that's kind of where i my head ended up today i just read this incredible article in deadspin and then and then immediately went um on on someone's suggestion and watched this 90 hour excuse me this 90 minute uh documentary <laughs> Uh, called the Barkley Marathons, which is on Amazon Prime and other places. So I'd recommend that. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, uh, I think anybody listening to this podcast probably has strong opinions about the Coen brothers and uh, probably has already seen this movie because it came to Netflix. Um, but it is also in theaters right now. And it, it would make a really good uh, screening in theaters, but I think you can also watch it at home if uh, that's what's super convenient for you. Mm-hmm. Scott's making scrunchy, displeased okay. face. Or I'm if that's right. the only way you're able to watch it where you are. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it, it might only mm-hmm. be in art house theaters. Oh, yeah. um, it is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, their new feature skeptical question mark <laughs> uh this started life as a a six episode mini series um sort of an anthology series with with six separate tales of the old west uh and they decided to meld it into one big film reportedly because they feel that the whole thing has an overall arc and they wanted people to watch it in a specific order they they were very disturbed by the idea that if each of these segments was available separately people might watch them all higgledy piggledy in whatever order they felt like mm. having watched it i'm not entirely convinced that it's necessary there's there's no narrative crossover there's no connective thread between them it's not like black mirror where it's telling a bunch of different stories but there are subtle connections between them that said buster scruggs is such a coen brothers movie <laughs> in spite of being uh, a bunch of little coen brothers short stories it's framed like an old Disney Winnie the Pooh cartoon, like complete with the the book opening up in front of you and like leafing through the pages. Each one of the six segments starts with a, a color plate of an image from the story with a line underneath it from the story. Uh, and then we go into these these weird little short stories that are just so strange and oblique and kind of delightful. A lot of people are not a fan of the color grading in this movie. I've heard a surprising amount of complaining about it, and I don't know where they're coming from. I think the color, the cinematography in this movie is gorgeous. I mean, it feels like an old Technicolor Western, uh, especially in the opening segment, uh, which is actually called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, starring Tim Blake Nelson as a singing cowboy. You know, for people who are familiar with the Western genre, this film feels like it's full of callbacks to old classic westerns but at the same time it's just it's very wry it's very fresh it's very funny it's very lively 
it's also weird and dark and sad in a lot of ways. Um, the cast is really is really great. Uh, you've got like Liam Neeson and James Franco and Zoe Kazan and Clancy Brown and Brendan Gleeson and Stephen Root and Tom Waits and of course Tim Blake Nelson and Tyne Daly. All, All right, of these Tasha, people. We, we have places to go. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got thirty more uh, stars to to list off. Uh, it's one of those films where half the time when somebody pops up, it's somebody that you probably know. And that's a lot of fun. Uh, But mostly what attracted me, I think, about Ballad of Buster Scruggs is just every one of these stories, I spent virtually the entire story thinking, I have no idea where this is going to go. It's just an unpredictable, surprising and and interesting. Like if you if you got the feeling watching, say, A Serious Man or Burn After Reading uh, or even Fargo of just... I don't know where this story is going and I'm enjoying the ride. There's so much of that here. I think the Coens are once again playing out their fascination with questions of morality. I think there's a lot going on here in terms of terrible people not being punished and not terrible people being punished. But a lot of these these stories go to a more narrative, moral, logical place in the sense of, of old Westerns than a lot of their stories do. That said, they're just really unpredictable and dark and funny. The last segment has just a bunch of people in a coach just talking to each other, and that is most of the piece itself. And in that moment in particular, it reminded me of Everything that I loved about Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, like everything about the character building, the world building, the sense of of being in a place and time, uh, and people just spooling out their characters through dialogue and creating the tensions in the story through storytelling and and singing and self-invention. And then none of the parts of Hateful Eight I didn't like. So it's it's honestly, it feels like they've they've created an even better version of a film that I already liked a fair bit by eliminating all of the all of the bad parts of it. So it's <laughs> and very making it shorter <laughs> and making it shorter. It's it's very easy to see Ballad of Buster Scruggs if you already have Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also in theaters right now. So I, I highly recommend it. I'm looking forward to check, looking uh, checking out these Cohen brothers. You know, <laughs> about, uh, they're uh, they're up and coming. Uh, I think they're going someplace. I'm trying to see this one in the theater, and I just don't know if I can work it out. So I may have to just give in and turn the lights out and the sound sound up and chop the phone off and try to like get his um, have one of your kids like sitting a few feet in front of you and occasionally put their phone light on just to really give you that theatrical experience maybe have a sound (laughs) clip of like crinkling wrappers and crunching popcorn that you play on your phone ambience that's what you need ambience (laughs) you can can dump half a coke on your den floor and let it dry a little bit that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pair will come out December 11th and December 18th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? In the new costume drama, The Favorite, Rachel Weiss stars as Sarah Churchill, the power behind the throne of Britain's Queen Anne, an aging monarch with little interest in affairs of state. When Sarah's disgraced cousin Abigail, played by Emma Stone, arrives in court, she starts to undermine Sarah's influence with the Queen, and the two women end up in a head-to-head war for power and popularity. It's the latest film from Yorgos Lanthimos, the Greek director and co-writer of Dogtooth, The Lobster, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. But it looks nothing like his previous work, given its setting among the 18th century aristocracy and its focus on relationships and rivalries among a group of women. It does look a lot like a previous American film, though. Weiss has personally called it a high-stakes version of Mean Girls, Mark Waters' 2004 film about social cliques and female rivalry at a Chicago-area high school. Like the favorite, Mean Girls features an entrenched power. In this case, Rachel McAdams is the school's queen bee and head of its most powerful social group, and a newcomer played by Lindsay Lohan, who arrives and challenges her power. This conflict operates on much smaller stakes, since it's about the social hierarchy at a high school instead of the rulership of England. But both films operate on cutting remarks and underhanded schemes, on mean pranks, false friendships, and hidden agendas. It's a look at two levels of social sabotage, on a big stage and a small one, on the next episode of The Next Picture Show. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Thief, Widows, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. 
Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Well, I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, although you're probably not going to find much of my work there for a little bit. I'm still uh, pretty behind the scenes mode these days. And I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, but you'll probably not find me tweeting there much because I don't tweet much these days. So, you know, you can't really find me anywhere but here. Uh, Tasha, what about you? Well, you can find me all over TheVerge.com where I'm the film and TV editor and i'm in front of the scenes and behind the scenes and you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson where i go back and forth between not tweeting at all and tweeting 30 (laughs) times a day it just depends on how well i'm doing guys yeah same here Uh, scott yeah well um you can find me at twitter at scott underscore tobias or you can find me um in various publications new york times uh, washington post npr i just had a piece uh my first piece run for mel magazine <laughs> for, uh, which is like i guess run by uh, Do- dollar shave club uh bankrolling <laughs> this place but they 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 ran this big uh, chanwick park um uh, sort of beginner's guide that i wrote up and i was pretty pleased with the way that turned out so you can look for that there and i'm also the editor in chief of oscilloscope's musings blog um our, as for our co-host keith phipps you can find him at at k phipps 3000 on twitter or and you can find his work at places like vulture or the ringer or the verge right occasionally the verge mm-hmm. uh and um, yeah, he did a piece for us on uh other side of the wind that it was very fond of yeah ex- exactly and you so, can find his uh collected work at keithphipps.com that's right okay yeah. um we'll, we'll we'll see him next time we 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 miss keith though i saw him yesterday he's fine uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry no, don't worry about keith He's he didn't right. he didn't gun down a bunch of uh thugs nah, and then wait you fine. mean those things you say at the top about where our absent people are aren't actually nah, true nah, he's just he, <laughs> last time he saw keith he was sloping off into the night slowly removing his bulletproof vest so well we'll see <laughs> yeah you know, it's a little ambiguous where he's, he's, survi- he's a survivor keith Phipps. uh so you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via twitter at next picture pod and via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show and if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in the former home of Tippy the Turtle. <laughs> the Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. <laughs>